In a slot in front of you, if you don't have your own Bibles, there'll be Bibles provided. Page 786 in those Bibles. The reference today is Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Interesting reading, and Kelly's going to connect the dots for you in just a few minutes here. And if you'd like to stand right now, that would be appropriate. And it is your last chance to stand before you will be sitting for some time. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Be seated, please. Please remain in your Bibles right there, if you would. We are going to be there. You know, we, uh, we each have different gifts when it comes to serving the Lord. Uh, as John was reading, I was thinking to myself, John has a gift for this. And he reads well the Scriptures, and he communicates them in a way that's significant and powerful. One of the things that God has gifted people with in our church family is a desire and a vision for how our church can improve its effectiveness, how we can be more what God wants us to be as a church. And so we have a group of elders, for example, who've been gifted by God, I think, for thinking about what we need to be and to do as a church and how our ministry can move forward. And there are other people in our church family who consistently think about how it is that we can be the best church that we can be. It is There is almost not a day uh, in my ministry life when I don't have some kind of communication with Hope Pollock. She calls me virtually every day, or I call her, and there's conversation there about the church. And what I find about Hope, and this is true of Darcy as well, is that Darcy and Hope are constantly thinking about our church. Like, do do we ever go off of your minds? She, she's nodding her head, but I'm, I'm not sure I'm in agreement, okay? Not that I can read her mind. Although sometimes it seems that way because she's always talking about our church and how we can be all that God wants us to be. Recently, we had 35 people or so, I say recently, within the last few years, we've had 35 people or so who've gone down to Post Falls, Idaho and spent time with Real Life Ministries. And the whole purpose of them going and spending time there was so that they could think about the future of our church, the ministry of our church, and so that we could do better the things that we do for the Lord because we want to do the best that we can do. And the fact is, is that God, I think, wants all of us to be thinking about the things that we can better do as a church, how we can be as effective as we can possibly be. And so that happens for us as a corporate body. I think it happens, it needs to happen for all of us personally as well. Now, the text that we're looking at this morning speaks directly to this issue. Like one of the things that I think the Holy Spirit was doing when Acts 19 was written 
was affirming for the church the kind of things that have to be present in the church in order for the church to be everything that the church can be. And it's like if this element is missing, something drastically is wrong. There's a problem here if things aren't the way that they should be. And so we're going to look at this text because I think it's uh, so significant. Now keep your finger there in Acts 19, and I want you to flip back to Matthew chapter 3. I don't know what page that's on in the Pew Bibles, but it's the first book in the New Testament. I think you can find it. Matthew chapter 3. And I want you to notice verse 11. And the context here is that John the Baptist is preaching. And he says some harsh things to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He talks about his ministry a bit. But then he says in verse 11, probably the most significant thing that John ever said. Verse 11 says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, the whole notion of fire there is the idea of judgment. And that's important. Jesus, God says, has been given by God the right to judge. And so that's an important part of his ministry. But I'm convinced that the most, well, the most, one of the two or three most important things that happens in the ministry of Jesus Christ is the proclamation of the Holy Spirit. And I I know how important the forgiveness of sins is, the perpetual forgiveness of sins that comes to all of us through Jesus. Like that's just right up there in terms of the significance of Christ. But you can't in any way make less than that the importance of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of of the church. Now here's the thing. John says in so many words that there is something missing with his own message and with his own baptism. And what he's talking about obviously is the Holy Spirit. And from our perspective, if we're thinking, what do we want to be as Christians? How are we going to function as a church? One of the things that's truly the case with John's ministry and his message is that there was a weakness to it. It was an inherent weakness framed by God, planned for by God, accepted by John. John knew this was a weakness in his own ministry. John's baptism and its weakness. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, but it did not include the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is perhaps as great a difference between the old covenant and the new as even the perpetual sacrifice of sins that Jesus offers to us on the cross. This is huge, absolutely huge, and there's no way that the church can in any way ignore this. If it does, it's to its peril. Now, flip back to Acts 19, and I want to show you something actually from verse 24 of chapter 18. Just look in my Bible, it's across the page. Verse 24, we looked at this last week. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Okay, so he teaches about Jesus accurately. He knows Jesus. He's a disciple. Though it says he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Now, this is fascinating. Here's a man who is a disciple, but who knows only John's baptism. And what seems obvious 
is that he just didn't have the whole story. There were things missing from Apollos' gospel. He doesn't quite get it. And so if I ask you the question, even based on what we've just said in the last few moments, if I said to you, what is it, church, that Apollos was missing in his proclamation of the gospel because he knows things about Jesus and actually teaches about Jesus himself accurately. So what is it then, if I were to ask you, that Apollos is missing in his proclamation of the gospel? You're going to have to say what? The Holy Spirit. Sure. It's just so obvious. It sticks out there like a sore thumb. Apollos doesn't have some knowledge about the Holy Spirit. Well, that's significant. He was of great help, by the way. If you look at the rest of these verses, look verse 27 and 28. I won't read those. It says Apollos was of great help to the church in Achaia. What happens is Apollos comes to Ephesus, which is on one side of the Adriatic Sea, and he ministers there for a while and is taught by Priscilla and Aquila. And then he is sent across the sea over to Achaia, to the region of Athens and Corinth, where Paul had ministered previously. And it says he's of great help to the church in Achaia. But he's in great help after he hears about the ministry of the Holy Spirit from Priscilla and Aquila. So he's taught by them about the way more accurately and goes to, to Athens and becomes this really powerful force for the gospel in Athens. Now, let's look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. We've already had these read to us. Paul is in the middle of his third missionary journey. At the end of the second missionary journey, at the end of chapter 18, he goes down to Caesarea and then back up to Antioch. We saw this last week on the map. And then he starts in the third missionary journey to go through Asia Minor again, and he makes his way over to Ephesus. Now, Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila had just been in Ephesus, but now Apollos gets sent across the Adriatic Sea over to Corinth, Achaia, and Paul finds himself now at Ephesus. And what does Paul find there? He arrives on the scene in Ephesus and he finds people there in the church who the text says are disciples, but it says about them the same thing that had been said of Apollos, that they know only the baptism of John. And it's interesting because Paul, when he gets there, Something is wrong. Like, we don't have an indication of this. He doesn't say, I noticed that something was wrong. All of a sudden, he just asks this question. He asks the question, don't you even know that there is a Holy Spirit? And, I, and that just blows me away. Why does Paul ask that question? Like, if, if I was to come here as a, the new evangelist, and I was here for a while, and all of a sudden I looked at you and I said, have you ever heard of the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't that strike you as odd? Now, that would be a weird thing, except for the fact that perhaps you hadn't heard that there was a Holy Spirit. In which case, for me to ask that question would not be strange, because you wouldn't be talking about him. He wouldn't be evident. There'd be no evidence of the Holy Spirit in your lives and no discussion about him. And so I would have to ask the question, have you not heard of the Holy Spirit? And I'm convinced that something like that must be going on in Ephesus that drives Paul to ask that question. Now, what's interesting is they answer, no, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And then Paul has to ask another question. Then what baptism did you receive? And he's quite shocked here. I'm just going to go on here. A couple of slides. Um, we've already seen that one, uh, or seen that point. The point is, is that 
Paul asks this second question because he sees a direct relationship between baptism in the name of Jesus and their lack of knowledge about the Holy Spirit. No, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Well, then what baptism did you receive? If you were to make some kind of logical connection there between what Paul must be thinking, what is he thinking? He must be thinking that anybody who has been baptized in the name of Jesus and who has heard the whole story is going to understand something about the Holy Spirit. And if they've never even heard of the Holy Spirit, then what must be the case? There must be something strange, something deficient in the baptism that these people have received. There's a specific lack of teaching and understanding about the the Holy Spirit with respect to baptism and what's supposed to happen. And the point, of course, is that for Paul, the Holy Spirit must be, has to be, part of the communication of the gospel. In fact, communication about the Holy Spirit must be, has to be, part of one's understanding and baptism in order for one to get it fully right. Now, I don't know if that scares you, but I have to tell you that it scares me. And the reason why is because when I became a Christian, nobody told me about the Holy Spirit. When I became a Christian, nobody told me about the Holy Spirit. The only way that I even knew that there was a Holy Spirit was that I started reading my Bible. And I started reading it and reading about the Holy Spirit in there because you can't miss it. I started reading the New Testament. I got to Matthew chapter 3 and I saw that Jesus was supposed to bring the Holy Spirit as part of his ministry. It's a key element. And that was not part of my earliest understanding. Well, I think that's a little bit frightening. Let me tell you how that happens. Here's our traditional steps to salvation within churches of Christ. This is one way I heard it. When I first became a Christian, I heard, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Many of you heard exactly the same thing. True? There's no mention there of the Holy Spirit. This is another way that I heard it. Believe, repent, confess, be baptized, walk in the new life of faith. And what I took from that, especially with this last point of walk in new life of faith, was not Holy Spirit, but you go live righteously before God. Live out this new life that you have in Jesus. And there is no mention in that of the Holy Spirit. Now, these are the two standard ways that we've communicated the gospel over the years. What's interesting is, I didn't put this up on the screen, but what's interesting is is that when we first developed the five steps to salvation, when Walter Scott and Alexander Campbell and his father were going around formulating the five steps of salvation, in the beginning, our plea actually included the Holy Spirit. Walter Scott developed this, and he included the possession of the Holy Spirit as the last step within the five. With time, our plea evolved. And we started talking about this differently. Why did we do that? And the fact is, is that it's because there were certain people who were afraid of the excesses of the Holy Spirit that they saw among some around them. And so they dropped the message of the Holy Spirit out of the gospel plea. And so by the time I became a Christian in the 1970s, 
These two were the kind of the standard ways of hearing about the gospel and what it was that Jesus had done. But we had pretty much dropped out the Holy Spirit. Now, here's my point with this. To me, this looks too much like the baptism of John. And I'm not saying it's exactly the same as the baptism of John. I don't think it is. But it looks a little bit too much like it. Because the element about the Holy Spirit has been almost intentionally left out because of the fears about the excesses that are present with the Holy Spirit. And I think this is something that we need to correct. In fact, I would say this, that there's a question we need to ask ourselves, and it's something like, if Paul came to our church, would he hear enough about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so as to not have to ask the question about our baptism, about whether or not we have heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Do you get the significance of the question? If Paul did walk in here, if he was here for a while among us, would he hear so much about the Holy Spirit? Would he hear the message of, the, of Jesus proclaimed in such a way that included the message of the Holy Spirit so that Paul would have no doubts about whether or not we heard and believed in the Holy Spirit? Or would we be like in Ephesus where he gets there and finds some disciples who teach accurately about Jesus but don't really know that there's a Holy Spirit? Now, I don't think it's really true to say that we wouldn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. I believe that we do. But does the Holy Spirit live in us? Is he as evident among us at such a level that it would be obvious to Paul that the Holy Spirit was part of our life as a church? And if that's the case in any way, if there is any way at any level that we would feel like, oh, you know, that Paul would say, well, the Holy Spirit isn't living as fully in them as he needs to. If there's any way in which that's the case, then that's something that we need to correct. Because there are huge ramifications for a church if the Holy Spirit isn't kind of front and center among them as part of their ministry and their expression of the gospel, their life together as a church. Uh, years ago, I had a fr- I, I've, I've told this story before, but I have a good friend that I grew up with, Mike Hazy. Uh, Mike was a great guy. I loved him. He and I came to the Lord at the fr- at the same time. Great brothers uh, in the Lord. Just he was such a dear friend. We did ministry together, working on the bus ministry together every Saturday when we were teenagers. Uh, we're part of the same youth group. It, it, he was just a wonderful guy. Well, Mike, after he graduated from high school, moved to Seattle. And he was living in Seattle, working for a bank there. Things were going fine for him. But he he had a problem with his eyesight. Something was wrong with his vision. And so he decided that he would have to go to an eye doctor. He'd never been to an eye doctor in his life. And he thought, well, I I need to go to the eye doctor and get my vision checked because things aren't quite going for me the way they should. So he goes to the eye doctor. And the eye doctor is absolutely floored because Mike can't see a thing and he has no glasses he'd never worn glasses i don't remember he he never had glasses when we were kids or anything but over the years his eyesight had gotten progressively worse and it was just terrible so the doctor finally gives mike glasses and says to him the world is going to be different for you now and he gives him glasses and so mike calls me on the phone oh a month two months or whatever it was after he got his glasses and he said kelly You're not going to believe what has happened to me. He said, my whole world has changed. Everything has opened up for me. I couldn't see before. 
And he talked about how he'd drive down I-5, which if you've ever been to Seattle, I-5 drives right next and through downtown. Like it's a freeway that goes just about through downtown Seattle. And so he said, I had been driving down I-5 every day of my life going to work. Well, not every day of his life, but his, his working life in Seattle, watching the skyline and not ever seeing the buildings. He said, I couldn't see it. And it's right there. Like when I talk about, you know, it, it's, it's way closer than from here to downtown Calgary. Can you be able, if we are on the hill here going down Memorial, you know how that is. You go down Memorial and you look and here's downtown. You can see all the buildings. Mike had never seen the buildings of Seattle and they're twice as close as that is. And he'd never seen them. Which means if he was living in Calgary, he never would have seen the Rockies. Never would have seen them. Wouldn't have known that they were there. Well, that's what it's like when people who are Christians haven't experienced the life of the Holy Spirit. It's like not having glasses for years and years and years. And all of a sudden, you put them on and go, whoa, it's a different world. Something has changed. My whole life as a Christian is different because of my understanding now and relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so we need, we have to be open to the life of the Holy Spirit working within us. Baptism in the name of Jesus clearly in the Bible means at least two things. One, specific instruction about the Holy Spirit who comes to the ministry of Jesus. It has to include that. Paul says... What baptism have you received if you don't understand that there's a Holy Spirit? Something is wacko here. And so life in in Jesus is going to include this ministry of the Holy Spirit and understanding. And then secondly, specific presence of the Holy Spirit who comes through the ministry of Jesus. So that it's not just understanding. Like it's one thing for me to stand up here on a Sunday morning and say, folks, We need to all understand more fully who the Holy Spirit is and the ministry the Holy Spirit wants to have in our church. That's one thing. It's a completely different thing for you to actually experience what it means to have the Holy Spirit in your life. It's kind of like this. Like I used the illustration of Mike, but you can imagine Bruce Bruce Clark oftentimes fills our baptistry for baptisms, right? And so Bruce comes down, he's so diligent, he's so committed, he comes down, and it takes him a couple of hours to fill the baptistry, okay? Can you imagine if Bruce was turning on the faucet about like this and said, well, I guess it's time to fill the baptistry, and that's all he could get out of it. This would take him not just a couple of hours, it might take him a day to fill the baptistry because he's trying to do something when the faucet's half, well, more than half turned off. He just wouldn't, you know, it'd be like, I don't get it. What's going on here? And then one day Kelly comes in the building and says, Bruce, did you know those faucets open up more than that? And Bruce looks and says, they do. And I said, yeah, watch. And Bruce says, my goodness, if I'd only have known, like I could have filled the baptistry so much faster. This is so much better. And that's exactly how it is. When we turn off the faucet or turn down the faucet about the Holy Spirit and don't understand what the Spirit wants to do in the life of the church, we end up being a trickle, a trickle of what God wants us to be. And so there's so much that we need to understand about the Holy Spirit. We need to understand and be open to the presence and ministry of the Spirit in the life of the church. This just seems so obvious to me. 
that this is something that, that God's people, the churches of Christ, have got to get a handle on if we're ever going to be what God wants us to be. And so, an assignment for the week, okay? I want you to work on something this week, and it comes in the form not of learning in terms of more Bible study or something. It comes in the form of prayer. I'm absolutely convinced that we need to be more of a praying people than we are. God wants to bless us through the ministry of the Spirit in our prayer life. He wants to be here with us. He wants us to talk to Him, to have a life with Him that He can bless and encourage and endorse even. He wants to to accentuate our life together in significant ways. And prayer is, of course, one of the huge ways, the way perhaps that it needs to happen in the life of the church. So there's three things that I want you to do in terms of prayer this week. And, and by the way, if you're up here, you're looking at my notes, you'd see here in my notes that it says Amelda. The reason I wrote down the word Amelda here, and Amelda's thinking, that's my name. You're right, Amelda. The reason that I wrote Amelda in there is because I was talking to, to Shem one day on the phone. And Shem says to me, you wouldn't believe the way that my wife prays. Like my wife takes the prayer list and she goes in her bedroom And she prays through the prayer list from the bulletin. This was a couple of months ago. She goes in there and she prays through the prayer list of the bulletin. And he says, sometimes I go and I try and interrupt her. And she says, go away. I'm praying. Okay. So that I'm just saying this is wonderful that somebody in our church prays that way. And I hope you do too. Here's a prayer list for this week. Amelda, here you go. Number one, pray about the spirit's presence and power in our church and in us as individual Christians. We need to pray about this. And if the Holy Spirit is real, which he is, if God is present and answering prayers, which he is and does, then he's going to answer this prayer. If we pray for the Holy Spirit to be real within our church, to be present, to be active, he will be. And so I want you to pray about that. The second thing is pray about the Spirit's fruit being present in us. We need to make sure that the the fruit of the Spirit is present within us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Self-control. All those things need to be part of us as Christians. God wants them to be. And the more they are, the better off we'll be. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. It needs to be more present within us. I think God will answer that prayer. And then lastly, I want you to specifically pray for me. So when I say pray for the Spirit to be present in my life... I certainly want him to be praying for you to be praying that he'll be present in your life. But I'm specifically asking you to pray that the spirit will be present in my life. I need it. I need the spirit to be present within me. I can't do this alone. Believe me, I can't do anything alone. I, I, I need so badly for the spirit to be present within me. And I want you to pray this week for the Holy Spirit to be present in your preacher because I need him. Would you do that for me, please? If you pray this way, God is going to bless us. And so I'm encouraging you to pray. God's Spirit is going to come and minister in our church in very significant ways. And I'm anticipating that. I'm looking forward to the ways in which God is going to do that. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we praise you and honor you this morning and ask your blessing on us as we continue both in our morning and in our week and our month and the days ahead. 
Father, we want so badly for you to be present among us in a significant way through your spirit. Um, What a tragedy it is when your church doesn't entertain the presence of your spirit the way that we should. Help us to repent of that, God. Change our hearts and minds and make us more open to the ways in which you want to, to work among us. We pray through Jesus. Amen.